The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome to this special live recording of the Seneca Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you today from downtown Seattle, Washington, at the inaugural U.S.-China Series Conference. Let me hear what it would have sounded like if the Seahawks had beaten the Packers on Sunday night. All right, that's how it was. It would have sounded something like that. I want to give a huge, huge shout out to to three people: uh, to Michael Rodding and to Paul Craig, and of course to Sam Sachs, who put together what I think is just a fantastic event. It's just been really great. I've really enjoyed myself. Uh, the Seneca Podcast is produced in partnership with SubChina. Sign up for SubChina's daily email newsletter for a bountiful feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. So on the very early morning of January 3rd, a Reaper drone fired a barrage of missiles at a two-vehicle convoy near the Baghdad airport. In one of those cars was Iranian Quds Force Commander Qasem Soleimani, believed by many to be the second most powerful man in Iran after Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei. It did not take long for China Twitter, of all places, to light up with hot takes and speculation about how Beijing would react and how China would be impacted. While we might not all be in agreement with those who variously claimed that it was a gift to Xi Jinping or that it would drag China into the Middle Eastern morass, one thing is clear that just a dozen years or so ago, few would have bothered to make any connection between events in Baghdad and Beijing's geopolitical calculations. So, um, so many people did in this case, and that very fact, I think, and that they did it so quickly is evidence of the reshaping that I bang on about each week as I start the show. So today I am delighted to be joined by Jeffrey Prescott. Jeff was Deputy National Security Advisor to Vice President Joe Biden before shifting roles to serve under President Obama as the National Security Council Senior Director for Iran, Iraq, Syria, and the Gulf from 2015 to 2017. He is now strategic advisor to the Penn Biden Center. Uh, And before all of this, Jeff was, of course, a China guy with many long years in China at the Yale Center and other other things. That's where we know each other from. And that's how I'm always going to think of you as a China guy. So uh, with his experience in China and in Middle Eastern affairs, who could possibly be better for this particular show than Jeff Prescott? Let's give him a warm welcome. Jeffrey Prescott, welcome to So, Jeff, I wanted to start by talking about China and the Middle East broadly, but also about what you're saying to the candidates about China as as the first primaries approach. And we'll set aside a good chunk of time for that. But first, let's get a sense of what Chinese interests are in the Middle East. I mean, is it really just all about hydrocarbon extraction or is it is it just oil? Well, Kaiser, thanks for having me. And let me just say a couple of things about this. It, I think it's a good place to start, um, not just because it matches with my own uh, biography, but I think it's a good window into the way that China's interests around the world are changing and changing rapidly. And mm. Middle East is a good place to look at that. So 
I guess you have to start with energy. It is really all about the oil. China is now the largest uh, importer of oil in the world. It has relationships with many of the countries across the Gulf, and interestingly, across the political divides within the Gulf, uh, working on uh, natural gas with Qatar, working uh, with Saudi Arabia, now the largest importer of oil from Saudi Arabia, looking at um, uh, Iraq and Iran, working with both those countries very closely. So you're dealing with a um, uh, an environment where China's economy, which at this point is still dominated by energy-intensive industry, production of goods, manufacturing of goods, um, heavy industry uh, and construction and infrastructure development, all of which require a huge amount of energy for its economy to grow. And that means a couple of things for China. One is that China is very sensitive to the price of oil because small increases or decreases in oil have a big impact on China's GDP bottom line. Uh, And second, um, because as China diversifies its economy, it's beginning to start to invest in a broader range of things, starting in the Middle East with that energy economy, looking at downstream investments, looking at investments in some of the oil fields in the region, but also working on partnerships with Gulf countries and their oil companies in China's own refining capacity. So there's a complex energy thing going on. At the same time, the same kinds of investments that China's making all over the world, you also see in the Middle East. So they're investing in technology. They're investing in infrastructure projects in the Middle East. And in some ways, the Middle East is tailor-made to the Chinese model of development because you have a, in many places in the Middle East, you have a very inhospitable environment. China's willing to come with their companies. They come with their workers. Mm-hmm. Um, Gulf states are actually very happy to see that, uh, unlike some other parts of the world. Right. You've got authoritarian governments that want to build brand new cities in the middle of nowhere. China's very good at doing that kind of thing. And so there's actually a, a pretty good partnership here. What it, The upshot, though, is that energy is number one. These other investments are complicating China's involvement in the region. And I think the big question that we should be looking at is does China's geopolitical uh, picture change as its depth of investment, the nature of those investments, and the quality of those investments change over time? That is a very good question, and it's one that we're going to get to. Let me ask you a couple of quick sort of nitty-gritties about your own experience, and I think um, it should produce, I hope, some, some good anecdotes. You were quite involved in bringing, uh, in the diplomatic efforts under the Obama administration, in bringing China into the JCPOA, which is more commonly known as the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, as what Beijing signed on to sanctions way back, I think it was 2009 or 10, right, uh, when they first signed on to sanctions. But my sense is that uh, it took a rather heroic effort to get China actually on board with JCPOA. Uh, where did they start? Where were they when you started working on them? What were their objections to it? And what combination of things finally brought them around to yes? Well, let me say a couple of things about that. It's a very good question. Um, And actually, it's a good window into the kind of uneasy dance between the U.S. and China that you see on issues of geopolitical importance, and one that I think we've been talking about over the course of this day, but I think uh, many of your listeners are familiar with and thinking about all the time. So a couple of things. Before the Iran nuclear deal was negotiated, um, the U.S. did have a pretty robust set of sanctions on Iran to try to incentivize it to get to the negotiating table and strike that deal. Congress had a part of that. 
um, the Obama administration, the Bush administration before that had a part of those sanctions. And the sanctions were focused on Iran's nuclear program, but there are other sanctions programs that the U.S. had on Iran related to its support for terrorism, to its human rights abuses of its own people, um, a pretty complex web of sanctions. Those changed dramatically as the United States began to go after Iran's energy sector. And to make those sanctions work, we had to get the rest of the world on board with the enforcement of those sanctions. And that meant that the big consumers of energy from the Middle East and from Iran specifically had to get on board. That meant China, that meant India, that meant Europe, uh, that meant Russia. Uh, and so essentially what you had on the sanction side is a all-out diplomatic effort at the beginning of the Obama administration to get these countries to reduce their uh, purchases of Iranian oil, to abide by other parts of the sanction architecture around Iran, to try to create that kind of pressure that was going to be necessary. The U.S. couldn't do it alone. We had to have other countries with us. And that meant, especially as someone who was working on China and Asia at the beginning of the administration, in some ways it could be kind of frustrating for a diplomat because you've got all these priorities in Asia. We want to shift our emphasis to China, to the rest of Asia. We've got a big agenda and a bold agenda. But the actually the, the rebalancing, the pivot, we can get to that. This is even before that. But number one issue on the agenda is Afghanistan, because we're in the middle of a war there. Iraq, we're drawing down our troops, but still in a very delicate situation. Uh, and Iran, where we're trying to get these sanctions. So actually a huge amount of the diplomatic capital the United States had at the beginning of the Obama administration the global financial crisis, of course, also being at the top of the list. But a lot of that uh, diplomatic heft we had to put into the sanctions enforcement regime because the number one security priority in the Middle East at the time, if you talk to Israel, if you talk to the Gulf states, if you talk to U.S. security experts, for all the problems we had in the Middle East, Iran with a nuclear weapon, and they were just months away from having enough fissile material to be able to create a bomb if they wanted to, would complicate the security picture immeasurably. Mm. So that's something that we were really focused on. And it required a lot of diplomacy with China. China did go along with those uh, uh, sanctions to some degree. Uh, India, Russia, others did as well. The, our European partners were right with us. And what that set up was the possibility of a negotiated process that began with secret talks between the US and Iran, which were in part uh, run out of the vice president's office at the time. But it culminated in a set of negotiations with the permanent five members of the UN Security Council. So one of the ways China got into this is by being part of the UN Security Council uh, and with um, our closest European allies with Russia and China. And that ended up being the framework that resulted in this uh, groundbreaking nuclear deal in 2015. I mean, in, in earlier negotiations, uh, the ones that we talked about earlier and getting them onto that earlier set of sanctions before JCPOA, China was known for sort of dragging its feet and delaying as much as possible or diluting down as much as possible. Uh, were they, I mean, did they try to throw a spanner into this or how hard of a, of a, of a mission was this for you? This was an extremely hard and extremely difficult diplomatic lift for a few reasons. One is China just as a matter of principle rejects the idea that the U.S. can enforce sanctions extraterritorial. Right. So it never really bought into the idea that it was um, a legitimate use of uh, U.S. economic power, uh, even if they uh, grudgingly agreed with the security objective in mind uh, for it. Um, but second, um, for all the reasons that we were just discussing, China was really uh, dependent on 
energy and sensitive to price changes in, in, in the energy market. So there was a real economic cost to China to abide by these sanctions. At the end of the day, though, it ultimately becomes a choice between access to the U.S. financial system uh, or uh, uh, kind of going your own way and, uh, and ignoring these sanctions. And the U.S. had the uh, ability to use that leverage to get them to the table. I see. <laughs> you muscled them. Um, I'm, I'm curious, though, if we could maybe sketch the trajectory of Chinese oil imports from Iran over that uh, the, the run-up to it. So uh, at the beginning of, of last decade, what they were importing, what, like 13%? And then- yeah, I mean, it's um, we should get into the facts and figures. It feels, uh, let me sketch it in kind of broad terms. Sure, sure. That's all I'm asking. Um, you have China's um, economy growing, of course, rapidly, and so its energy needs are going up. So the, dep- the relationships across the Middle East are developing at a very rapid pace during this period. At the same time, we were looking to bring down uh, Iran's contribution to that picture by a significant degree and managed to achieve that by having China not completely eliminate those purchases, but by reducing them significantly and having other countries like India, Japan, um, uh, Russia, uh, others do the same thing. Uh, That wasn't able to completely eliminate the ability through smuggling and other ways for for Iran to evade some of these sanctions, but it did put the squeeze on. And I think it was a, a significant contributing factor to the kickstarting of those uh, negotiations. There were other factors too. Iranian politics were changing in this period with the election of Rouhani. There were uh, uh, opportunities that came diplomatically, obviously, uh, to pursue um, a kind of formula with Iran. But the uh, sanctions pressure, I think most of the folks who've looked at this think, uh, had a a significant impact in uh, motivating Iran to the table. Mm -hmm. And what's the oil import picture look like today? Well, now we're back in a very complicated moment because uh, the Trump administration in May 2018 pulled the United States out of this deal that was working. We should talk a little bit about that if you'd like. Um, And uh, the Trump administration pursued what it's called a maximum pressure strategy, which has essentially meant reimposing all of the sanctions that were on Iran before it came to the table and got the deal. The problem is this administration hasn't really set out a clear goal for what they're trying to achieve through that sanction. It almost seems as if they're putting pressure for its own sake. They don't really have a diplomatic strategy to get back to the table. Trump has said he wants a better deal. This really surprises me. <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's a it's a familiar pattern that sure. we're seeing uh, uh, we're seeing across across the globe. But what it means is that China has got the squeeze on again uh, to uh, lower its uh, uh, imports of uh, Iranian oil, and it's done so. Now, in part, other partners in the Gulf have upped their production, and that's helped stabilize oil markets. But it really has been another struggle. Uh, and I think part of the reason why China has been willing to play ball this time is because of the trade war and the hope for a kind of an agreement with Trump. I see. Still, over 50% of China's oil, imported oil comes through the Strait of Hormuz. Is that right? I mean, so there's still a, a great deal of, 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 of risk to that. That's right. And as you see these tensions uh, with Iran since uh, Trump pulled out of this uh, nuclear deal, uh, you see a lot of concern, not just with China, but uh, including China, about shipping in the Gulf, about the security of those uh, shipping lanes. And I think it's something that uh, this is part of where China now has a much bigger stake uh, than it used to uh, in whether that stability is maintained over time. 
Now, Beijing has managed um, to stay relatively neutral, really quite neutral in the great regional contest between Saudi Arabia and, and Iran, uh, which is playing out in all, all manner of proxy wars, whether you're talking about in Lebanon or in, in, in Yemen. Uh, and it continues to import significant amounts of hydrocarbons from both, or it did from Iran until fairly recently. Uh, is that something that it's been easy for Beijing to do, or is this a difficult needle to thread? Well, it's a really good question. And, you know, as an American, I think you have to kind of scratch your head a little bit and say, you know, how did they avoid the, how have they avoided the geopolitical tangles that right. we've found ourselves uh, wrapped around the axle on over the last number of decades? Ch- China has been uh, shrewd about sticking to the economic portfolio as their main uh, objective in the region. I think that has worked to this point. They've maintained very uh, transactional and uh, uh, simple relationships with the countries across the region, and that has spanned these uh, ge- geopolitical differences. It's, I think, beginning to change, and I think the question is how quickly it changes. China's interests are now much more deep, so there's more at stake. Um, I think they found themselves uh, caught a little flat-footed in the sense that they don't have the levers to be able to shape events in their own direction. If the United States decides to go to war in the Middle East, that disrupts oil markets. That has a huge impact on China's economy. There's very little that China can do about that right now. So I think there are some folks in Beijing who are thinking, how um, how do we protect our interests, not just in the Middle East, but around the world? Uh, as they become uh, more deeply connected to other parts of the world. But at this point, they've maintained that dance. And I think I've been quite happy to watch the United States take the burden on protecting uh, freedom of navigation, protecting, um, uh, uh, to the extent possible, the stability of the energy flows in the Middle East. So this describes Beijing's um, sort of take on this for or a number of years now. What about in the aftermath of the assassination of, of Qasem Soleimani? Has that calculation changed at all? I mean, there were a lot of people who were saying this was a gift handed to Xi Jinping. Other people were saying that it only sort of highlights the impotence and, and the, the uh, lack of, of, of any kind of wherewithal for Beijing to shape events in the region. Uh, that was, that was a, a take that was, uh, what was her name? Um, Camille Lons, who was at the European Council on Foreign Relations. I should credit her with that. Uh, which she said on the excellent China and Africa pro- podcast. What, what, um, What's your what's your sense on this? Well, I think it's a little early to make big conclusions about the impact of this. My own view is that this was a huge mistake for the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, we shouldn't shed a tear for Qasem Soleimani. He was a bad guy. He's got the blood of Americans on his hand, uh, on his hands, uh, and um, uh, was responsible for a huge amount of uh, instability and terrorism around the region. But he was a senior figure in a sovereign government. Right. And um, this is very different than a counterterrorism strategy where you're looking at non-state actors. And I think it's setting a precedent of going after senior military and senior political leaders that obviously is, is there, there are other precedents in history, but it's a fairly recent one. Uh, that suggests targeting this level of official. And I don't think we've seen quite how that's going to play out. I think it's one that uh, other countries in the region, uh, and I think the Chinese as well, are going to take a close uh, look at and watch uh, how this develops because it sort of changes the game in uh, the way that uh, countries interact with each other in that part of the world. And I think everybody's going to have to pay attention to that. At the same time, 
we were just minutes or meters uh, from a much broader escalation of this conflict between right. the U.S. and Iran because of this step that Trump has uh, decided to take and this path that he's taken us on over the course of the last year and a half. Year and a half. And um, there's a, I think the other voices you hear in Beijing are the ones who are very happy to see the U.S. bogged down in, a, uh, in another conflict in the Middle East, and we very well could be there uh, given this course of events. Um, that said, uh, further escalation of these tensions would have a huge impact on the energy markets, and China has to worry about that as well. Trump shifted recognition of the capital of the state of Israel to Jerusalem. Uh, and right in the aftermath of that, Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority said they would no longer participate in anything where the U.S. was sort of leading a peace effort. Uh, some speculated this opened the door for China as a kind of honest broker. And in fact, China for a few years now, the last one was in, I think, late 2017, has hosted these Arab-Israeli symposia uh, in Beijing. Does Beijing have the experience, the stature, the mutual respect to or even the desire to step into this morass as some sort of a quote-unquote honest broker? I'm very skeptical of mm -hmm. that possibility happening anytime soon. Um, I'm not sure that Beijing would seek that role. Um, I think they've tried to maintain relationships with Israel and with the Palestinians right. in an effective way as part of this more general strategy of keeping in touch with everybody and, and maintaining a kind of neutral profile in the Middle East. Um, if they want to take some of this burden off of Jared Kushner, I think uh, <laughs> uh, he may be looking for a helping hand, but um, I don't think you're going to see them kind of bringing the two parties together. And I don't think the Israelis would have anything to do with it. I do think the issue we have to watch as Americans is kind of think about uh, China's uh, cooperation with Israel, uh, particularly on infrastructure projects, particularly on uh, technological uh, and, and innovation projects. I think that's something that's probably keeping American uh, officials up at night uh, a little bit more than um, the possibility of stepping into the Middle East, Middle East peace process. Well, that's great. I, I mean, I promised that we would spend some time talking about um, what, what's happening right now and the work that you've been doing with National Security Action. Today, this is January 15th, Liu He was in D.C. and signed the Phase 1 deal. And this was, you know, something that's no panel that's been held today has failed to talk about. We shouldn't be an exception. Apparently, you are not impressed. <laughs> uh, I, I saw what, some of the stuff that you've written about this on Twitter. Give us a set. What's your take on Trump's trade war and this latest development? Well, I think it's a real, um, uh, it's ultimately going to be a, a real shame for the United States to have wasted um, the opportunity. I, I do uh, think that the Trump administration has managed to generate some leverage with China uh, during the course of this trade war. It's not exactly the way I would go about it. I think it's mm. been much more costly uh, to the American economy than, um, than it has uh, benefited the American economy. But uh, it has generated some leverage. Um, and Trump has essentially squandered that leverage for a you know, set of commitments that look very similar to the kind of incremental small ball commitments that prior uh, negotiations with China has generated. But Trump has upset so much of our economy in the process of doing it. I just think that when we do the puts and takes on this deal, uh, it's going to turn out to cost us far more than we have gained. Uh, and it's in some ways um, even worse than that because uh, Trump has sort of broken the seal on some economic tools that, you know, have hurt 
our agricultural economy. I've hurt our farmers. We're sitting in a situation where bankruptcies are higher than they have been in the farm uh, belt. Um, We're sitting in a situation where manufacturing job growth has now gone into negative territory. We're in a situation where um, the cost of the tariffs at the end of this year, if they continue, even at the current rate, is going to be close to $1,000 per American. And essentially what we've gotten in this deal is um, getting back to where China, what China would have been doing before the trade war. If you look right. at the agricultural purchases, for example, it's a good example. It was on a trajectory to come right to where right, right to now. where we are. But it's even worse than that because uh, we've American taxpayers have spent twenty eight billion dollars providing emergency support to farmers. So we're actually going to take two years just to get back to where we would have been uh, if 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 nothing. And this is an interesting pattern that we've seen with the Trump administration, where Donald Trump creates a crisis. Uh, a crisis of his own making that's uh, pretty bad for the United States. And then he kind of comes in to try to um, staunch the bleeding, doesn't do a pretty good job. The arsonist firefighter. The arsonist firefighter. And we see that here. We've seen this in other areas as well. And I worry about it not just for uh, the impact that it's having now, but the impact that it has on our credibility going forward. Absolutely. You know, Trump has, has upset apple carts left and right. Whatever you think of his approach, I'm pretty clear on what you think of his approach, whatever the costs there may have been, one thing, though, does seem to be true, that that Trump has upended things and knocked a lot of the pieces of the old China policy quite loose. Should we be trying in this next administration to rebuild it essentially as it was? Should we, you know, all the king's horses and all the king's men try to reassemble that kind of vaguely ovoid shape that strangely is depicted wearing later hosen most of the time? Um, should we rebuild Humpty or should we be creating something new, an omelet perhaps? Or um, okay, I don't know where you're going with this metaphor, but... Yeah, <laughs> um, you know where I'm going with this metaphor. Well, I do think you raise a very interesting point, and that's part of what I meant when it's kind of a shame, because if you look at um, issues around the world, look at North Korea, for example. Um, Trump used the idea of a presidential summit. Now, President Obama said he would meet with the North Korean leader without preconditions. He wouldn't have done it unless we had achieved something in advance, and he might use it to cap a set of achievements. He had a phone call with the Iranian president. Once sure we had that's a, without conditions then, but. <laughs> well, I mean, it has to be in the service of our interests. Sure, and absolutely. so, you know, there was a phone call between uh, the U.S. president, President Obama, and the Iranian president. That was after we had negotiated a groundbreaking nuclear agreement that was airtight. Trump has now gone with North Korea, just as an example, and squandered three presidential summits, all the credibility that comes with that, and achieved absolutely nothing. If anything, we've actually gone backwards. So unfortunately, the next president is not going to have that source of leverage or that tool available. We're actually going to be in a worse position with fewer tools in our toolbox. It's it's kind of a similar story with China. I do think he's uh, he has taken some steps and you, and created some leverage that other administrations have not. I think there are good reasons why other administrations didn't go there. But let me give you one concrete example. A very sensitive set of negotiations in the Obama administration with some very serious threats attached to them generated an agreement with China to cyber for them on, on their cyber-enabled economic espionage, the idea yeah. that they're stealing our stuff and giving it to their companies. 
that did have an, a significant impact Absolutely, on yeah. China's activity. That's all gone away into the Trump administration because they haven't kept up that deal. In some ways, they're paying for the same horse twice by getting some commitments in this agreement as well. So that's a shame. Yeah. But the point is, you can use some of this leverage in an effective way. Now, that doesn't mean we can go back to the way things were. The reality is that the issues that we're going to face in the next administration are going to be much more complex. China has changed. The United States will have changed. The issues on our agenda will have changed. Uh, and we're actually going to have a big hole after the Trump administration we're going to have to dig out of. And I only think back to some of the issues I was working on at the end of the Obama administration. We were still dealing with Iraq and the rise of ISIS. We were still dealing with Afghanistan. We were still trying to close Guantanamo. So cleaning up the messes from the Bush administration was still happening at the tail end of the Obama administration. So Of the second Obama administration. Exactly. Right. And I think um, I sort of look at the road ahead in terms of a huge set of global challenges that have essentially been ignored over the last few years. We're going to have to pick those back up. And then we're also going to have to clean up the mess, uh, uh, egg or, or, or other type, uh, that uh, Trump has kind of left us. If we win. If we win. And so to get to win, uh, you are dispensing, I hope, um, the sort of sound advice that we've heard from you today to several of the presidential candidates. Um, I'll leave people to make draw the conclusion as to who you actually, you know, what master you ultimately serve. But uh, let's let's... Let's let's be candid here. Beijing has not made it easy for any of us who want to turn the temperature down. Uh, is there a way for a candidate or for a president to stake out a position on China that is principled when it comes to the egregious human rights violations that we're dealing with, especially in Xinjiang, while at the same time arguing against a broad decoupling? It's a difficult needle to thread. Yeah. Well, I'd say a couple things about that. I think that um, what's been interesting to watch uh, in the foreign policy debate on the Democratic side as the primary is heated up is there's actually quite a bit of unity on the Democratic side about our approach to the world. And part of that is rooted in the concerns that we have about the way Trump has gone about doing this. So there's something unifying in the critique of Trump and in, in some ways right. in the negative. But in some ways, the flip side of that critique is the beginnings of what an agenda would look like. So let me give you an example of that. Trump has basically dissed our allies, turned away from them. Um, he's actually slapped his tariffs both on China to try to create live, but also on our friends. Um, he's sort of turned. He's sort of uh, turned his back on them left and right, and insulted them in ways that you know, small ways and large ways that really make a big difference. You know, what Democrats are talking about is a need to get together with our friends. If China is a significant challenge, and it is a significant challenge, we need to help write the rules of the road for the future. We're, we've been talking about these emerging technologies. We've been talking about new issues that are going to be on the horizon. We need to be at the head of the table helping set those rules and helping bring China into that set of rules. That's complicated and it's difficult work, as your listeners know, you know better than anyone. But I do have to say, if you're not working with your friends to do that, you're never going to get anywhere. We control, what, 15% of global GDP. If we get together with our closest allies, you can get up to 40%, 50% of global GDP. Mm -hmm. You can set some rules of the road that are significant. And that's something that I think the next administration is going to have to look at. Let me give you one other example. Um, I think our values have been... Um, completely disregarded by this administration. Trump has coddled dictators. He's turned away from our friends. 
This is bigger than the Trump administration. We're living in a moment of a democratic backslide. That's We're right. seeing that with some of our allies. We're seeing that, obviously, uh, the way that Xi Jinping is taking China. Um, not that it was democratic to begin with, <laughs> right. but um, I think the closing, of, the, the closing of space for different voices in China, I think, has a significant impact both in the way that China operates in the world and the way that it's treating its own people. And you raised Xinjiang. That's a perfect example of something that we're going to have to all work together on. It's much better for us to be speaking out about human rights with our friends. It's much better for us to be putting values back at the center of our foreign policy. That's going to mean some very tough conversations. But actually, what we found in the past is China responds to international criticism, especially when it's vocal. And it's unified and it's, and it's principled yeah. and it's multilateral. And I think there's an opportunity there. But, you know, I've heard a lot of people, including some of my friends who work uh, in the human rights community very closely. And I started my career in human rights. Uh, it's um, we got to do more than just talk about it. We're going to have to think about some real tools uh, to mm. get at this set of problems. China is going to be one of the toughest, but we have to talk to some of our friends in NATO as well, because we're seeing um, both the democratic backsliding I was just talking about. We're also seeing the weaponization of corruption um, and the use of corruption by authoritarian governments for strategic ends in their foreign policy. That's something we see with Russia. I think we see a little bit of that with China. It's something we need to watch carefully. Um, but I think this is a th this is something that um, we're going to have to tackle because it really corrodes the foundation of an open society and a democratic society, and that's something we have to be very attuned well, to. Well, we can talk about tactics, but I'm, I'm really more interested in strategy and, and in grand strategy. Now, it's an article of faith for me that we cannot have a grand strategy that does not encompass a, a China strategy. That is, the two things really need to be sort of developed at once China does loom so large. And I don't know that we can create a grand strategy just out of the negative space that Trump has left, as you're suggesting. Why Am I not hearing a positive articulation of it rather than no more unilateralism saying actively multilateralism? Uh, I don't hear enough of that in, 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 from my party. Well, I have to say, I mean, I think right now the emergency that is the Trump administration does require, I mean, we're dealing with, uh, you know, a level of uh, uh, dishonesty, uh, a level of uh, dangerous action on a kind of day-to-day -day basis. And so I do, I completely agree with you. Like the affirmative vision gets drowned out a little bit when you're dealing with uh, everything that Trump is kind of throwing at us uh, in throwing at our country on a kind of day-to-day -day basis. I mean, we're having articles of impeachment uh, taken over to the right. Senate today at the same time that we're having a, a kind of, uh, from my perspective, a pretty weak tea uh, a, a trade uh negotiation uh, being uh, settled uh, uh, with China in a way that really hurts us. So this this stuff is happening at a rapid pace. But I actually do think when you listen to candidates uh, for president, um, you know, the debate stage is a very bad place to, to kind of hear that because yeah. it's so uh, short. But when you listen to people talking on the stump, they talk about getting together with our friends. They talk about standing up for our values. They talk about the need for us to get together and kind of write the rules of the road for the future. And one thing that they talk about above all of that is the need to us for us to invest in the sources of our own strength 
and the sources of our innovation in education and immigration, the things that have made us so uh, strong in the world uh, for many years. And honestly, that's actually the number one thing that we have to do. If we do nothing else but invest in ourselves, the rest of it will take care of itself. Pretty Amen. Well. Amen. Absolutely. Jeff Prescott, thank you so much for joining me here for Seneca and at the U.S.-China series in Seattle. Uh, before we let you go, I want to make sure we get recommendations. Um, what do you have for our listeners this week? So I've been thinking about this. You know, one of the uh, one of the joys of not being in the White House um, is that uh, I have time for my own reading now. But there's this black hole of essentially anything that was published from 2010 to 2017. I basically mm. did not have a chance to digest it. Um, something I just read was um, a book that came out in 2010, at the end of 2010, Isabel Wilkerson's uh, The Warmth of Other Suns. Oh, it's, yeah. It's yeah, an yeah, extraordinary, yeah. Uh, extraordinary piece of Fantastic. historiography and also storytelling about the Great, Migra- great Migration, the uh, movement of six million African Americans out of the South to the rest of the country. What's really interesting to me as somebody who thinks about China and thinks about America's role in the world. Essentially, the stories she tells and the personal stories are incredibly compelling. And it's really well, it's really well constructed as a, as, a, as a narrative. But she tells a story essentially of African-Americans fleeing as refugees, as immigrants, out of, the, out of their own country to other parts. That's a part of our history we don't talk about enough. But the outcomes of that movement, which are tragic in their origin, uh, actually look a lot like the immigrant experience as we normally think of hmm. Others coming from around the world. What happens to the first generation, the second generation, the third well, generation? Well, now that you say that, it's not surprising. But yeah, I don't think that's something... And it's not a way that you think about it at all, but right. it actually has these touchstones to those of us who think about foreign affairs. That's a story that that's a story of America in a number of ways. Now, it shouldn't be the story of America when it comes to uh, the African-American experience, but the outcome for many of these families... Um, it, ultimately ends up being a positive one if a tragic one. And, and so I, I commend it to you for that. Excellent, excellent. Uh, interestingly, I also have a book of American history that explores a corner of our history that's not often treated. Uh, I read a book recently uh, by a, a writer named Pekka Hamalainen. Uh, it's called Lakota America, A New History of Indigenous Power, which is just a magisterial study about the 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 tribes of Plains Indians that we collectively know as the Sioux, Lakota especially. And we think of them as those proud horsemen of, of the American high prairie. And it turns out they're not really originally from there at all. They're uh, from, from considerably to the east of, of it. And it, it really illuminates a piece of history that I, I was utterly clueless about. I mean, uh, my, my knowledge was restricted really to bury my heart at Wounded Knee and Dances with freaking wolves. I mean, it was, I'm sorry, but it was fantastically good. Um, there's, there's a, a, another book that he's written, which I'm, I've, I've got on my, on my, uh, list next. It's about the Comanche Empire. Uh, so it moves significantly south and talks about the Comanche. So thanks so much, Jeff. That was just a, a real pleasure. Uh, I'm r- wonderful. And I, I really look forward to having you back on the show. Uh, Jeffrey, everybody, a warm round of applause for Jeff Prescott. (laughs) The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by me, Kaiser Guo, and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. 
drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News, and make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pandaily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, new voices, and ta for ta, the Middle Earth podcast about the culture industry in China, and Strangers in China. Watch the space for announcements of new network shows coming very soon. Big, big exciting things. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.